At this time, take a moment to open up your copies of God's Word and turn with us to uh, Numbers chapter 1. We're going to be reading the last few verses of chapter 1. Hear with me the Word of God. It says, But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their, by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, do you see the love of the Father in this text? You see the love? Finally, we have moved on from counting. And we have a brief respite where we hear of the Levites, this particular tribe, who are not to be counted. There's a, you shall not count them. They're not going to be conscripted into the military. They're going to fight a whole other war. A war for the sake of the love of God's people. He is not willing that any should perish. The death of his saints is a dreadful thing. And he does not desire anyone to be killed. He wants them to be protected. So he puts a structure in place. And he, and he tasks these Levites, this tribe, descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob, of which Moses, Miriam, and Aaron are, are, are participants in, uh, in that tribe, they're descendants of his. And, and, and as you look at this tribe, they are going to be the one who makes sure the tabernacle is preserved, is set up and taken down, and it is going to be uh, guarded. Guarded. Have you ever wondered why God would need to guard? Uh, he needs guards, guardians. It's because He's holy and we are sinful. In our sinful estate, we cannot appear before the presence of God without certain death. And the Lord uh, would have to break out His wrath if anyone were to go against His revealed will in this instance. And so they've set up this tent and there's a barrier. And these People, just like you and me, are going to be a human wall against anyone stumbling in there and touching the things that are not to be touched. They're going to be a human barrier and a guardian against any outsiders coming into camp and taking these holy instruments set apart for God's worship. And so he's loving them in that way. He's taking things away from them that are dangerous which is namely his presence, and he's teaching that this is the pathway of the gospel, that someone must become a guardian, a barrier, a remover of sin, an atoning sacrifice for sin, or there will be certain wrath and destruction for anyone who enters into the presence of God. It will be a complete disaster. 
And that's a loving message. That's the truth. This has been the case since Adam and Eve. Being in the presence of God without this mediation would be like being struck dead lightning while having a heart attack, simultaneously going blind, deaf, mute, and having all your bones broken to bits by the forces of the universe. I, I envision the, the presence of God in, in my sinful state as being in outer space, taking off a spacesuit, just being crushed. That is the magnitude of the forces against you when you go against the creator of the universe, the heavens and the earth, the Holy One, the One who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we are but sinners. You have no space to get in there and play around with God. He is holy to mess with the things that he has set to be holy. It would be infinitely worse in that film created by Steven Spielberg in his imagination about Raiders of the Lost Ark when, when the Germans see the ark and their faces are melted. To be in the presence of God is certain death. The Levites were specially commissioned to prevent that disaster, to guard anyone from that disaster of God's wrath. That's their task. Why? Why would he do this? Because he loves them. God made it that way because he loves them. And we'll spend some time on that point, but we're going to spend the most of the time on the last point, which is the end. What is the end of guarding God, of, of guarding God this, and this Levite's commission? So we look at this. Uh, this task of the Levites was to guard. This tabernacle structure had been built the instruments that are put in it have been built, designed by God, given a commission to Moses to build them this way and completed in the last 15 chapters of Exodus. And the good news is here that these guys, these Levites, are going to be like the priestly class. They're not going to be a fighting army. Everyone else will be in the army and counted so, but their task is summarized in verse 53 and stated and repeated and summarized as guard surround, carry, assemble, guard it. The word guard from outsiders unknowingly wandering in and contacting it and being executed is the love of mercy of God. Guarding God's wrath from breaking out of the camp is a loving kindness of God. The Levites are those human shields. They're set apart for the holy task of handling those instruments. And these instruments are testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ preached long before his incarnation. You can examine those for yourself in Exodus 25 through 40. These things testify to this gospel. And they actually, because of their structure and the guardianship, prevent the incidents of the wrath breaking out. Because of the procedures, because of the protocols. So following the collapse of Adam and the world into sin, God promised to crush the evil one. He promised to clothe his people and remove their sin and to dwell with them in fellowship again. And he's going to do so by the work of an offspring of a woman, by one person who will be God and man, who will be slain and then rise on the third day, and he would enter in to eat the tree of life, eat of the tree of life, the fruit of it, and bring us with him. And so in Genesis 2.15, we see a shadow of Christ. You know, Jesus would redeem God's elect people. He would do so by functioning as a king. He'd be like David, right? He'd be the king that's better than David, the picture of what David ought to be. And then he'd be a prophet like Moses or Elijah. He'd be a priest like 
Well, the Levites. Or he would have been what Adam should have been. Adam was a Levite or priest or guardian. If you, if you had your Bibles and turned them open to Genesis 2.15, you'd see that the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it or guard it. That's the same word that is used of the Levites, to guard the garden. He's going to do priestly work. And in, uh, after the sin, in Genesis 3, verse 24, the final words of Genesis 3, following sin, it says that God drove the, out the man, so he put the man in. After sin, he drives him out of the garden because the man had failed in his task of guarding the sanctuary. So he cast him out to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim, this angelic creature. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's what Genesis 3, 24 says. So God is all about guarding, guarding the path to the tree of life because if sinners were to eat of the tree of life, we'd remain in a state of eternal misery and sin and suffering and death. And God would not have it. So he put the Levite there, the, the, the angelic Levite, the cherubim with the flashing sword going each and every way to make sure and certain that no one could ever enter into that curse uh, before God saves them by the mediator, by the true guardian. So the Levites had this task of guarding the tabernacle, which witnessed to God's holy presence. Adam had failed at guarding, and the actual heavenly tabernacle was being guarded by an angelic being. The actual heavenly tabernacle was being guarded by an angelic being called a cherubim. And if you were to pass into that judgment, it would be a certain awful death. The flashing sword, the sword of judgment. The Levites had a, had a history of being guardians. Uh, in Genesis 34, they kill. They, they, they put on a ruse and they kill uh, these uh, evil people, uh, Hamar and his son uh, uh, Shechem, who, uh, who defiled their sister. Uh, and they, they, uh, they were pretty, pretty, uh, pretty vicious. Uh, in uh, Exodus 32, the descendants of those guys, uh, when the uh, golden calf incident occurred, when Moses is speaking to God on Mount Sinai, the people are worshiping a golden calf put together by Aaron the founder here uh, of the priesthood. And at that time, God's wrath is hot. And Moses intercedes. And he calls on the Levites. He says, Moses stood in the gate in the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro the gate and throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his own son, of his own son and of his own brother, so that God might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Uh, the blessing is uh, preventing them from the wrath of God really breaking out on them. It put them down. Uh, what would it take for a man to escape God's wrath? It would take perpetual, perfect, complete obedience to God's revealed will. None of us have that. 
none of us could go into the presence of the ark of the testimony and into the presence of God and his glorious presence there. Uh, the Israelites boasted of having this. They boasted of having Moses' law. But rightly understood, that would be a very humbling message and nothing to boast about because it says, none of us are worthy to enter in. None of us are able to enter in. That we must have a substitute to enter in for us, a priest to go before us who's without sin. And that we have to be guarded from God's presence by the Levites. This message ought to be crystal clear. None of us get in. None of us get in according to our own merit. None of us. We would be killed. We have to be held back from certain destruction by meeting God because of our sin. The Israelites actually boasted about these things, but they didn't get it. The original Levites, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, found that they offered strange fire, not according to God's designs in Leviticus 10, and were immediately slaughtered by God's wrath. There were two funerals. Uh, The Levites would carry the ark, according to God's design, into the waters of Jordan, and the waters would peel back at the power of God. This ark and the presence of God represented in it is powerful. Yet the people would mess up, and they got the ark captured in 1 Samuel 5. Suddenly, the idols of the Philistines were being destroyed overnight. Suddenly, they were getting plagued like Egypt was. The ark was turning Philistia into Egypt. After David had become king over Israel, he sought to reclaim the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. So he sent not Levites. He sent men of the tribe of Judah. And they carried the ark back on a cart. A man named Uzzah in in, uh, 2 Samuel 6 saw that the, uh, that the animal pushing the cart stumbled, and so the ark began to slip, and he, he reached out to touch it and, and correct it. He was killed by the glory of God, by the wrath of God against disobeying him. Following that, uh, David sent the ark away and eventually brought it back, but he repents of his sin by sending the wrong guys. And he, listen to what he says. This is First Chronicles 15, 13 through 15. Listen to this. It says, David summoned the priest. Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites, Uriel, Asai, Joel, Shimei, Eliah, and Amminadab. And he said to them, you're the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders of the poles as, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. God's law matters. Every detail matters. Every command matters. There's nothing unimportant, nothing inconsequential. He says, because you didn't carry it before, because I sent the wrong guys, God's anger broke out. And so now we're going to do it as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. He told us because he heard from you, Lord. And they did it, and they brought the ark back. So, the, so, the, the, so we've seen, okay, you've got to have a guardian. They've got this task. So, when do we see the, so where do we see the Levites today? Where are the Levites? Do you know any? You might know some priests, people who wear black shirts with a little collar. Um, don't ever call me a priest. Uh, I, I, yeah, the priest is Christ. 
We are the kingdom of priests, but we are little p priests. The Christ is the embodiment of this, Jesus. Sinners cannot approach the presence of God without unleashing the wrath. No sinner who has passed into glory by the grace of God is now interceding for me. There's one priest who intercedes for us. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the priest. Where then have all the Levites gone? Well, it seems that God's wrath is mentioned a lot in the New Testament. Revelation 16, in fact, tells us the last days angels will be pouring out wrath from God. And it's pictured as seven bowls being emptied upon all of creation. It's, it's essentially the, the plagues of Egypt typified in Exodus are now bigger and worse upon the whole earth, not just Egypt. God's wrath is not only upcoming at the end of days, but it's being seen now, just not how we might expect it. And far worse than it being an external threat to us uh, when we break a law, like when the government uh, is God's avenger, to dole out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, as Romans 13 has said to us. Here's what it says in John 3, 36, in the words of Christ. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So the wrath of God is not just outside of me or to come. It can actually be on me. And how is that possible? Because I'm not dead. How can the wrath of God be on me? I'm not being slaughtered by the wrath of God or instantly killed as his previous Old Testament passages have spoken of. Well, Paul tells us precisely how. It's in that we have no desire for God. Zero desire for God. God may be spending his wrath on just leaving you alone. Leaving you alone. Uh, you don't really want God in your life. That could be God's wrath. That's what he says. Uh, Ian Duguid in his commentary says, a radically God-centered focus of our existence is far more of a commitment than what most modern people want from their religion. I think he's exactly right. We could be in church and have the wrath of God on us because we don't want our God-centered life. God's wrath on unrighteousness is this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Romans 1.18, Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do we suppress the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So claiming to be wise, they exchanged the glory of the Lord for images. And it says that therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity, to this honoring of their bodies. They changed the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He gave them up to dishonorable passions, sexual passions uh, that are shameless. It says that, that they did not see fit to acknowledge God and he gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not be done. On and on and on. The evil that these people embodied is the wrath of God. The lack of desire for God and the wanting to change him in for anything else that could be a center of your life is the wrath of God. Edmund Clowney says that most people do not want to lose all contact with God but prefer that the relations with him be handled by a professional. Let the clergyman do the praying. 
it's all well to have God available at a great distance. Uh, we need we are at no no great distance. We might need His help, but we have God. At the, can we have God at the center of our lives? That's too close. His presence would be most inconvenient for some of our business deals, our entertainment, or our seeking the good life promoted in our cultures. That's pretty honest. So where have all the Levites gone? If God's wrath remains, is, and is to come. The answer is that their guard duty is finished. It is ended. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Hebrews 7 and 10 teaches us that his priestly and Levite work has been accomplished. That the believers have been saved from their wrath through justification by his blood. Jesus endured the flashing sword of God's wrath, died and rose and ate of the tree of, of, the, of, the, of life for us that we might, in him, taste of it as well and enter into glory. In Romans 5, 9, it says that, Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you're doing. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, the question is, do you have faith? It's not how good you are. It's not what have you done and what have you not done. Uh, the question is, is your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins? To be the one who goes through the, the, the slashing, flashing sword of God's wrath that you might be welcomed in. And for many of us, God has smashed our idols. He's let us be dissatisfied with our idols. They haven't filled our hearts with joy and, and what they promised. And we found ourselves empty. And we've been filled with the glory of the Lord, Christ. He is the eternal glory of the Lord, the invisible image of God in man. And we, as we've seen him as our Savior, we've repented of our sin, we've trusted in Jesus, and we've come to the mountain of, of God's glory and the thing is, is there's no tabernacle that we go to, there's no tent, there's no barrier, there's no boundaries, because there's no tent of witness or, or, or testimony, because we are the witnesses. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You will have power you will be my witnesses. You will be my tabernacle. There will be no more Levites because the Levites' work is done. So do you have a desire for God? Do you have a desire to rest in Christ, to, uh, to trust in his finished work as your Levite? If you've never heard that that is what it is, you probably don't have much desire for him. If you're just a worker trying to get your, your job done and satisfy God and do enough and, and maybe get to heaven working hard to get to heaven, heaven may seem like a less exciting version of business as usual. You might be playing some songs in your harp, resting on the clouds, relaxing, uh, but it's not really what you want, where you want to be. Uh, if you don't get that, it's quite possible you might be under God's wrath. And the good news is you can be outside of God's wrath into his grace through faith in Jesus. If you want to know God and you want to be with him, it is available to you. It's a free gift that anyone can have. But we've got to ask that sobering question to diagnose ourselves. Do we actually want to be with God? Do we want to be in his presence evermore, forever? Because heaven is not boring. It is a place of God's love. 
And it will be the greatest experience of our life to encounter the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have loved us eternally and purposed all these things to conform us to Jesus and to forgive us of our sins and to break down all the barriers. Uh, to not hear this gospel is like being in the present world trying to listen to music without ears. Uh, to, to grasp the richness of the song. It's trying to kiss your spouse through a paper bag only. Uh, it's trying to feel the warmth and closeness of God while there's still a barrier. There is no barrier. He gives you the spirit so you can cry in your heart, Father. You might think heaven is born because you have no ears to hear. That the tabernacle of God is born because you have no ears to hear the glory of God and you stand far off. But the good news is the gospel is what the Lord accomplished for you by the work of the true Levites. Now, um, he will, as he did with Moses, change you. As he did with these Levites, change you. As he does with countless saints, change you and give you a desire for him. If you will embrace his gospel, that Jesus accomplished everything for you to bring you into the presence of God without sin and to atone for you and to, and to take that sword that you deserved to enter the presence of him and take the, take the tree of life. So, I need to hear that. And I need you to hear this. I received a little magazine in the mail yesterday. It's from the Voice of Martyrs, Voice of the Martyrs. And they do a little, uh, you know, little magazine every now and then that I get in the mail. And this one told a story about a man named Abdul. He grew up in Bangladesh. At the age of 25, he became an imam uh, of, uh, of Islam, right? He was, one, he was one of the leaders. He, studied, he learned Arabic. He, he studied the Quran. 25 years of studying Quran. He looked at Isa or Jesus and the scripture there. He's like, there's got to be more to this guy. One day he's riding his bicycle home and he hears a voice. And he can't explain what it is. He, hears, he sees a light at one point. He hears voices. He starts to think he's crazy. And he starts to, eventually somebody uh, arrives who tells him more about Christ and gives him a Bible. Uh, and then he he, can, he converts to Christianity. He believes in Jesus. He's like, this is the answer. Finally, all these other prophets are dead, but Jesus is alive. He's risen. And his family looks at him and says, uh, you need to get out of here. Uh, you're not worth it. You're, you're like, eventually, they send people to kill him. They break his legs. Uh, he eventually escapes and leaves, and he ends up in a different village. And then he gets imprisoned. Uh, these people uh, come in to beat him up, as they usually do. At one point, they have knives to his throat, and they're saying, hey, you know, deny Jesus. Well, yeah, and he's like, I can't deny him. He is the Lord. He is risen. If you kill me, this would be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And they just get frustrated and leave him. He escapes. He's badly hobbled. He's badly injured. He's beaten. He's over 60 years old now. And he, and he has such a passion for this Savior who has forgiven him of his sins, who has revealed himself to him, his glory, it is in, enormously encouraging to me to think that God in all eternity had, had that story written. The 60 years of, of twisting, winding journeys so I could hear that story yesterday to encourage me. And I could share that story. And, that the, and that the thing that's bringing all these stories together is that God would guard us from his wrath through the mediator, through Christ, the, the priest, the Levite, that we might be with him forever in fellowship with him, face to face in love because he loved us too much to allow us to do the curse. 
And so we are this tent of wisdom, our, our witness, and our joy will speak volumes to what we are and what we believe. How much joy do we have? If we don't find ourselves with much joy, we go back to the gospel, back to, I have no business being in this place. And I'm a sinner based on my own works, but Jesus atoned for my sins. He took all my sins, and he offers me his righteous robes to cover me. And he opens through the flashing sword, and he lets me eat of the tree of life with him forevermore. And I will dwell with him. Jesus says that for, uh, that they hated me, they will hate you. Uh, he does these things because the Father sent him to do these things, right? Because he loves us, and he's agreed to do it. In John 16, he says that. In John 17, he prays for us. And I want to read to you this great prayer. It says this, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, Father, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. I've guarded them. He's guarded these, these friends, these men. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I thought there was no better way to end this today than from the prayer of the truth, the prayer of the real and ultimate Levite, the one who guards you and me and will guard us even through death. And Abdul knows that. The question is, do we know that? And we have the greatest treasure and the greatest joy in Christ our Savior. Let's pray.